are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. As I'm recording this podcast episode, we are two weeks into Ramadan, and it's also the beginning of the Easter holidays for my children. They go to a school where both Muslims and Christians go, so they usually have all the different feasts. And it is also Pesach for the Jewish inhabitants of the land. So that means that we have three important religious feasts in the same period. And if you've been following the news, there is also a lot of tension. There's been a couple of attacks in Israel and there's been a lot of raids and killings in the West Bank. And it's hard during the month of Ramadan when you want to focus more on your spirituality and on your fasting during the day, that you also have to deal with all this hardship. But this is the reality of life in Palestine. I have explained in previous podcast episodes that my family-in-law is not really very religious, but my mother-in-law does fast during Ramadan, and also my sisters-in-law. And that's more of a real spiritual month for them, where they contemplate where they go through that sometimes hardship during the day of feeling hungry and tired and having to work and attend to the needs of the children. And in the same time, learning that you cannot always immediately respond to your needs. And sometimes you have to postpone that a little bit. And that also makes them grow stronger in a way. And so since I lived here in the beginning, it was different because my children were still young. But especially for the last four years, I've been taking the month of Ramadan as a special month of the year for myself. And I'm also not religious. I'm agnostic. I think that in every religion, there is something beautiful to learn. And we are all choosing, I think, a religion as a vehicle to go through this life because we're all wondering what are we doing here and what is the meaning of life. And I think that religions can help in finding a structure and finding a way to go through this life, to have a set of values and a set of norms. And it's also definitely part of the tradition. The place where you are born and the place where you grow up will definitely define what kind of religion will be yours. And some people may change religion. It's like you are changing a vehicle you didn't like the bicycle, so you prefer to go by bus or you want to go faster and you take the airplane. And that's how I see religions. 
So for me, living in a Muslim community here in Beit Safafa and being surrounded by people who are fasting and you can see that the pace of life is different in the month of Ramadan. You can hear, for example, afternoon from six until seven, we hear the Quran from the minaret of the mosque. We get invitations to break the fasting at people's houses, at families' houses. So the whole month is already different. And for me, I don't stop eating. I don't fast. But for that month, I take a couple of decisions and I stop drinking alcohol and I stop eating sugar and processed food. And I really focus on a very healthy diet, balanced diet, And actually this year I made a schedule for myself and I'll tell you about it. It starts in the morning with waking up and drinking a big glass of water because I realize that throughout the day I often don't drink enough water. And I think it's a very good habit to just stand by the window and have the first minutes just to look out of the window, enjoy the view of the olive tree and look at the birds and listen to the sounds of the world coming alive and drinking that glass of water. And then I do 20 minutes yoga exercises and some meditation. And that already after a week, I can feel that my body is really responding very well to that way of starting the day. And I, I do drink my coffee in the morning and I make a very nice, healthy smoothie, either with lots of fruits or sometimes if I know that I'm going to have a busy hours after that I will add some oats and banana and dates so that I have enough energy and then I drive the children to school and if I don't have to go to work immediately I go for a long walk in the nature because in nature it's where I can really connect to myself and I am listening to a podcast now which is called The Way Out Is In and it is a podcast that is recorded in Plum Village in France, and it is in the Buddhist Zen tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, who recently passed away. But when you listen to this podcast, you are listening to two people who are living in Plum Village. One of them is a, a Buddhist monk, a monastic, and the other one is a journalist who is now living at the monastery, and they invite regular people that they interview. And it's such a nice journey. I find it interesting with myself to see that during the month of Ramadan, which is a Muslim month, and with now the Easter, Christian Easter, and the Jewish Pesach, I'm kind of finding my way in the Buddhist tradition. I don't have any intentions to becoming a Buddhist, but I do feel that they have certain practical ways of really connecting to yourself through breathing, through meditation, walking meditation, to find a deeper connection with my spirituality. And that's what I've been practicing over the past two weeks. And actually it's through creating more of the moments of calm in my life that I started to reflect on my life and on the big decision I made last summer to completely give up the apartment that I was still renting and where I would come back every summer And there were several reasons why I had to give it up. But I've been dreaming about that decision. Over the last month, I, had, I dream a lot in general, and I often remember my dreams. And I dreamt a lot about the house. 
most of the dreams were themed around the idea that I had to pack everything. I had to get rid of everything in the house and I didn't have time anymore. It was the day before departure. And then I also couldn't find the flight tickets. And I was wondering what to do with all the stuff that was still in the house. Or I also dreamt that I came back to the house and that I had not given it up, but rented it out to other people who then didn't want to leave. Or even I had a dream where the person who was staying in my house started a relationship with my neighbor. So it means that unconsciously, I'm still processing the fact that I really gave up everything unregistered from the Netherlands and I'm living with my two feet in Palestine right now. And all of these reflections, I thought maybe I will record an episode about my life in Palestine and how I think that it's different from if we had been living in the Netherlands and some of the kind of cultural aspects and habits that we have here that we don't have in the Netherlands. So, yeah, all this contemplating and meditation made me think about my life and how it's also different to raise my children here. And I realized that it's very different, I think, if you are an expat, which is what I am, I chose to live here, or if you are a refugee, because if you're a refugee and you had to leave your country, not wanting to leave it, but having to leave it, and then ending up in a place where you find some safety, that is going to maybe cause kind of generational trauma because your children, when you're raising them, they will always feel that you are not completely at home or at ease and the trauma that your parents have gone through and was the reason why they left their country. And my children, they know very well that I chose to come and live in Palestine. And even though there may be times where I find it harder than other times, they can also through me learn about Palestine because I studied the tour guide program. I'm very much aware of the history of this land. I'm deeply involved in the culture and society. So I feel that my children have a good base. And um, yeah, so I feel that this is very important for my children and for the fact that I'm raising my children in a country that is not mine. So let's start from the beginning, especially for those who never heard previous episodes in which I told a little bit about myself. I came to Palestine for the first time in 2006 and I joined one of those olive harvest programs in Bethlehem area and I completely fell in love with the country, with the people. I had a very spiritual moment when I was listening to the call for prayer from the mosque. I had a very clear understanding that I should not leave as I was planning to originally. I was planning to stay only for two weeks, but that I had to stay. I did that and then when coming home after three months, because that's when your visa ends, I came back to the Netherlands and I knew that I wanted to 
go back and to spend more time. And I volunteered in different initiatives and I spent a whole year in Palestine between 2007 and 8. And then eventually I got a job through the YWCA supporting the olive tree campaign, bringing people from Holland to Palestine to learn about the reality of life and creating awareness, getting people to sponsor olive trees to plant with Palestinian farmers, and in the same time bringing Palestinians to the Netherlands to give talks and lectures to create also more awareness. So it was an advocacy campaign. And in one of my longer visits, I met my husband and we immediately connected on the idea of opening a cafe because in that time there was no real good coffee yet in the West Bank, at least not in the Bethlehem area. And my husband had been working for six years as a barista in Jerusalem. So he was very knowledgeable about making great coffee, especially very good cappuccinos. So we started to look for a place and eventually opened Singer Cafe in Beit Sahur. And it's still there and it's been going um, sometimes easier than other times. The Corona time was, of course, very hard for us, but uh, it's picking up again now. But let's say something about when we wanted to get married. So first of all, we had to get married. I think if we were in the Netherlands, we would not necessarily have gotten married so quickly. But because the culture and tradition here doesn't really allow you to be boyfriend, girlfriend for a long time, maybe with a foreigner is a little bit different, but at least to officially announce something so that you can be sort of seen in public together. So Tariq, after maybe six months that we knew each other, he gave me a ring and we kind of announced that we are engaged. And then a year later, we got married. Now, in order to get married and to get the paperwork done so that I could actually live here, we had to go through the Israeli system because my husband is from Jerusalem and he has the Jerusalem ID. He doesn't have Israeli citizenship. He doesn't have a passport at all. He has Jerusalem ID, which is basically residency. And this residency is for the city of Jerusalem and you have to prove that your center of life is in the city of Jerusalem. And you have to prove that in many different ways. I'll, I'll explain that more. But for me to be able to live here, I had to get married through the Israeli system, which meant that I had to convert to Islam because at that time there was no civil marriage. Now I've heard you can get a civil marriage if you both denounce religion, which is very complicated because if a Muslim goes and denounces his religion, it's very hard in the community, even if you are an atheist like my husband is, but you're not going to officially proclaim that. I mean, I just did that here on the podcast, <laughs> so don't tell anybody. But for us, yeah, the only option was for me to become a Muslim. And it was funny. I remember my father-in-law, who was also not religious. I was a bit nervous about it. And then he joked to me and he said, well, we'll go to the Islamic court, we'll do it, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll drink a, a beer to celebrate it. So I felt that, yeah, it's not a big deal, but still you feel it's a big deal. You know, you grew up in a Christian family and you grew up in a non-Muslim country and all of a sudden you have to go to a court to say that you're a Muslim. 
But then I thought about it, and then um, I had to repeat the La ilaha illallah, or Muhammad Rasulallah. And I said to myself, I'm not saying anything crazy. There is no God but God. Okay, I can, I can accept the idea that there is maybe a God. And Muhammad was his prophet. Oh, I, I truly believe that Muhammad was a prophet. And as well as I do believe that Jesus was a prophet, and I believe that many other prophets have been here, and that until now we have spiritual leaders who are telling us very important things. But we as humans, as people, we institutionalize the religion, and we come up with lots of rules and regulations that were never what this prophet, what this spiritual leader was trying to say. So, yeah, I went to the Islamic court, I repeated that I remember that the judge looked at my husband and said, I hope you will lead her further in Islam. And I was kind of laughing to myself, thinking that I I think I actually know more about Islam than my husband, because I'm interested and I do read and, and listen and study. But that was the first step. Then we had the sheikh came to our house. He was a Sufi. That was also interesting. And... Yeah, we had to write the wedding contract. We did that at home. And then we had to organize a party. And if we had organized... Well, we did actually also organize a Dutch wedding party. So I'll tell you the difference. In the Dutch wedding party, which we organized in a windmill, by the way, we had about 60, 70 people maximum. And during the wedding, we were picked up by a group of friends who are music marching bands who came to Palestine before. And I had helped them a lot traveling around the country. So, you know, we were really close. And so they came and they played music as we were walking from my house to the windmill. And then when we arrived there, all our friends and family were there blowing bubbles. And uh, we started dancing a bit outside the windmill and then went inside And then we had speeches, because that's what Dutch people do. You do speeches for the bride and the groom. You talk about childhood memories and about how their life developed. And you praise them for things. And and I also announced, by the way, then that I was pregnant, because we had our wedding in Palestine before. And only several months later, uh, we had another wedding party in Holland. And then we had some food, but the food is like snacks and drinks, and then we danced and uh, talked. In Palestine, we had 700 people for the wedding, and we offered everybody a meal, big meal with rice and meat and salads and lots of things on the table. And uh, the dancing went on all the night. There was what they call zephe, where they basically received the groom, and they are dancing and clapping and singing traditional songs. And then uh, we, yeah, we, we just had a dance party all night. We didn't do all the traditional things like cutting the cake. We didn't really want to do that. And we, instead of cake, we had a dessert with fruits. So it was a Palestinian wedding, but we still had our own touch to it.
So I never in my life thought that I will have this kind of wedding where I will wear a white dress and there will be hundreds of people dancing and clapping, the majority of whom I never met before, of whom I had no idea who they were. But everybody was excited to see the foreign bride. It was really a nice wedding. So then we had to start the procedure of family unification. I will spare you the details, but it was very humiliating Every time we had to go to the Ministry of Interior in East Jerusalem, in Wali Joe's, they treat you really like criminals. From the moment you reach the building, you have to stand in long line. Very humiliating the way they treat with people. They separate the men and the, the women. Then they do a body check and a bag check. And then you reach inside and then you have to wait for a very long time in different lines. It's very complicated and you don't really understand what's going on until you eventually have your turn. And each year we had to prove that the center of our lives in Jerusalem. After seven years, I got my Jerusalem residency. So right now I am an East Jerusalem resident officially. I have the same ID as my family-in-law, the blue ID. All right, so after we got married, I moved in with my family-in-law. Interesting, because my husband basically moved from upstairs, where he was sharing a room with his brother, to downstairs. And we have a small house. It's really a small apartment. We have two bedrooms. In that time, that was enough, because we didn't have the children yet. And I was a bit concerned, because I had been living on my own for 17 years by that time. I was 17 or 18 when I left the house and I lived on my own. And then I was 34 when we got married. And all of a sudden, I'm living again with parents. They are parents-in-law, but you are again living with family. And I remember very well that in the first weeks, I was very sensitive about my privacy. So when I saw Abu Tariq, the father of my husband, coming and sitting in our part of the garden, I was just like, why is he sitting here? This is our garden. He can't just, I don't want him to come and sit here all the time. This is my garden, this is my privacy, you know? And I remember one evening I came home, maybe around 9.30, and um, I got out of the car and I had all these bags. I, I, I did shopping and he was like opening the front door and uh, asking, where have you been? And sending for the younger brother of Tarek to come and help me carry my shopping bags. And I was like, no, this is too much. He's waiting for me in front of the house. I can carry my own shopping bags myself and I don't get into my business. And also, yeah, he used to tell me in Arabic, Beiti Beitik or Beitik Beiti. Like my house is your house and your house is my house. And I remember clearly telling him, Lala. Betak betak o beti beti. Imagine to tell this to a Palestinian. That was really rude. So I, I felt at some point I had to kind of sit down and talk with him and my mother-in-law about this. And we figured it out because thanks God they are open-minded people and they are smart and they could understand how everything was so different for me. But yeah, I, I was very aware that I wanted to kind of put my boundaries and not having my father-in-law coming into my house at all times whenever he wanted because even though my father-in-law is not conservative at all he's still traditional like he's 
he grew up here. For him, it's very important to go to all these wedding parties and to every time when somebody dies to go for condolences at the Aza, as they call it. And um, yeah, I also remember now that we had made a wedding invitation with a photo of us on it. Heck, how we used to do it in Holland. And the family was like, oh, yeah, we already printed it. It's a nice card, but you know... Here, some people don't even put the name of the bride on the card. So to put your photo is maybe a little bit too much. So I was like, what? And then we just distributed our cards to our close friends and family. And they actually had other cards printed with my name on it. Yes, but very simple, the traditional cards, wedding cards. And I was like, okay, you do whatever you want. I don't... I'm not getting involved. I have my own wedding cards. You do the way you want it. But, you know, you have to realize also how the community will accept or not accept certain um, differences to, to the tradition. But the positive note on moving in with my family-in-law, I started really to realize after we had our children. And that was, first of all, because whenever, as a mom, you are tired of your children, and especially when they are toddlers, sometimes you just really need a break. I would tell my kids, go up to your city and see, though, go up to your grandparents. So I would feel that I had a little bit my hands free. And also... Uh, for babysitting, when I want to go out in the night and do something, they are usually, not always, but usually at home. So I can leave the kids with them or put them to sleep and then leave. So this is actually really nice when you live with a sort of extended family, bigger family, that you're not on your own. The same with cooking. And I'm so lucky and spoiled because my mother-in-law is an amazing cook. She knows to do all the Palestinian traditional food. And I really honestly can say that I have never eaten somewhere else and thought that that food was better than my mother-in-law's food. She knows exactly the quantities of the salt, how much oil to use, how to make it not too greasy, how to really the right amounts of spices. And it's always delicious. It's always perfect. So imagine, I barely cook. <laughs> In the beginning, I felt awkward about that. Like I, I felt also that I lost my in independency maybe uh, around that, you know, cooking food. But really now it's a blessing that when you come home and there is food. And then on the days, because she's not always there, she also has her own work and things to do. But then I, uh, I cook and my, and my kids, they got so spoiled with her food that they generally are complaining when I cook. There are just a couple of things that they really like of my food. Also because I really focus too much maybe on healthy food and healthy food is not necessarily always what kids like, you know, too much vegetables and, you know, they'd rather eat pizza or spaghetti when I'm the cook. But I do that also sometimes. But really it's a blessing to have a Palestinian mother in the house, grandmother in the house who, who does the cooking. Something I really had to get used to also was the mosque. We have actually two mosques near our house. They both call for prayer. 
I can hear one of them louder than the other one. But there was a time where the loudspeaker on the minaret was extremely loud. Even my parents-in-law at some point went and talked about it because, yeah, I guess they didn't realize how loud it was for the people who live so close to their mosque. And also it was the time in which I just had my children. You really have bad nights when they are, well, in the end of your pregnancy already, and then when they are babies. But even when they are toddlers, children wake up a couple of times a night. And then when I was finally falling asleep again, around quarter past four, four thirty, there would be the mosque. And it was literally as if the muezzin was standing next to my bed shouting in my ear. I can't explain it otherwise. You're just falling asleep. Your ears are already picking up the noises louder, I think, because, you know, it's all kind of relaxed in the ear. And then oh, it's like really loud when they are calling to come to prayer. So I had to really get used to that, especially also in the summer, you have your windows open because it's really hot here. I, now it's better. Now I, um, it's not bothering me at all. And actually I got used to it. Also the rooster, because we have uh, neighbors and they have some roosters and chicken. And this rooster also is very confused. And he just crowds at like the weirdest times of the day and also in the middle of the night. But I also got used to that. And actually it sounds really nice. You know, it's like you feel, even though you're in the city, that you are somehow in the countryside. By the way, the mosque here doesn't only call for the prayer. There are also announcements that are made over the mosque. And that's interesting because we really live in a village that now is considered to be part of Jerusalem. I did an episode about Beit Safafa in the first season, I think. So you can look for that if you haven't heard it. But Beit Safafa was a village and now it is considered as kind of a suburb or a neighborhood of Jerusalem. It's kind of southeast Jerusalem. It's a bit distant from the other parts of East Jerusalem that we hear more about in the news, like Sheikh Jarrah and Wadil Joz and Atur and all these places. It's really much more uh, in the south. But this is something you will hear regularly when somebody dies, for example. It is announced over the mosque and they will say the name of the person who passed away if they live here or in Jordan, because a lot of people from Beit Safafa also live in Jordan, and they also announce that. And then when they are from here, from Beit Safafa, they announce when the funeral is, and then it will be the men that will go to the mosque and then to the cemetery for the funeral. The women don't go to the cemetery. And then for three days, you have the Aza, and this is basically the house of the person who passed away or one of the close family members will be used. The women will be in a room and the men will be in another room and visitors will come in and they will say their condolences and they will sit and they will be offered a date 
and some coffee. And the religious people will read from the Quran. There are all the chapters of the Quran separately and people will take part of it and then read it so that throughout the three days they will finish reading the whole Quran. And if the person who passed away is very close to you, so you will go every day and you will spend some time with the family. That's what the habit is around the death of people. They also do other announcements over the mosque. I remember in the time of the corona, they used to give instructions on hygiene and to wear the mask and what were the rules regarding the quarantine, for example. So that is definitely something very different from Holland, where I used to also live close to a mosque, but they would only call for prayer three times a day from the minaret and very soft. You would barely hear it, actually, only close to the mosque. But the early morning prayer and the late night prayer were not called by the muezzin. These were rules by the municipality. Some other things about daily life that I contemplated about and that are different from if we had lived and grown our children in in Holland. So first of all, I remember that when the kids were younger, when they were so cute and they are very blonde, by the way, I think that I have strong genes for that. They really look like Dutch children. They have the features of their father's face, but they have my color and my hair color. And so oftentimes when we would be going around Bethlehem or even going for a hike somewhere in Batir, Palestinians who would see me with the children, they would definitely want to talk to us and they wanted to take selfies with the children. Ah, Tala, Maskaha, oh look how cute she is. And without asking, they will just come take pictures of my kids, want to take selfies. And when they were really young, they didn't realize it. But the older my daughter got, the more she was like, why do these people want to take pictures with me? So from an early age, I was explaining to her, yeah, you look different from other Palestinians. (laughs) You know, you look like your mom. It took a while before my kids had that real realization that my mom is not from here. I remember that for both of my kids, but in different stages, because my daughter is two years older, that we were in Holland and that all of a sudden, I guess it was when they were like three, four years old, when they realized all of a sudden that, ah, but I'm speaking a different language to my father and a different language to my mother. And the language of my mother is the language that all the people in Holland speak. Oh, so this is where my mom is from. This is her house in Holland. These are her family members. This is her language. And that's when they started to realize that, oh, our mother is different. I also remember that Louisa, at some point, she used to tell me that, mom, I wish you were like the other moms. And then later I realized that it had mainly something to do with the fact that I was so strict with not letting them to watch a lot of TV and have an iPad and have their own phone and play on the iPad all the time. And especially when it came to candies and chocolates and cookies and soda drinks, I don't want my kids to use a lot of sugar because I really believe that this is not healthy. So I'm all the time, this is my challenge here, balancing between 
not being too strict and not being that mom because here the people are like, Haram, why are you not giving her something sweet? Because they do it out of love. They care and they want to show the children they love them, but they don't realize that they are also creating a problem of sugar addiction. Anyway, my daughter realized that my mom is different and she's making different rules. And also maybe I looked different from the moms. But now she's older and she's actually telling me that she's really happy that I'm her mom. And that through me and because of me, she's learning another language. And she's also exposed to other country and to a lot of different things, different ways of life. She understands that... She's learning about different cultures, different traditions. So she's now, she always tells me, I'm so happy you're my mom. Sometimes she says, I just, oh, I just can't believe that you are my mom. <laughs> you know, it's so cute. <laughs> but yeah, we definitely, we are considered as foreigners when people see us. And also because my husband doesn't look like the typical Palestinians or the typical Arabs. He's quite, his hair is quite fair and his eyes are blue not brown and he's not very dark skinned so when we are all together they often they think we are foreigners and when we go towards the west when we are on the israeli side they definitely think we are jewish something's funny when Tariq wants to order something in a place in jerusalem and he doesn't know whether the person working there is arabic or hebrew speaking so sometimes they start off in Hebrew and then when they realize that they're both Palestinians, they kind of like, oh yeah, good, so we can speak Arabic. You cannot always see here from the outside what somebody's background is. And there's also lots of Jews who came from Arab countries, so they have Arab features, but there are Jewish Israelis and not, they don't always like to speak Arabic. Some of them do and then some of them don't. Anyway, yeah, I, I will always be considered and treated as a tourist here and this is something when we go to the Netherlands and I'm getting out of the train walking down to well I don't have my apartment anymore but just walking around nobody's staring at me nobody's looking at me nobody starts talking to me sometimes I'm like hello <laughs> I'm here don't you see me because I got so used to that when I'm in Palestine I always get stared at, sometimes I feel that they don't really have shame or they are not really aware that they are doing that. They are really looking at you and following you with their eyes. When I go into a shop where they don't already know me, so you just, you know, want to buy something small and you basically have to tell them your whole life story. It's like, ah, hello, where are you from? What are you doing here? You're like, yeah, I'm married here. I'm like... And sometimes I speak in Arabic to them. I answer in Arabic and, ah, Arabi. And so you start telling them, yeah, my husband from Beit Safafa, I came here so long ago. I'm like, I just wanted to buy something. I just want to go. But they are, they are nice, friendly, curious. But this will, I have to accept that this will always happen because I look different, but at least I'm treated in a nice way. 
And I know that the other way around, there are many people who fled their countries or moved to Holland for whatever reason, and they do not find that kind of interest from the Dutch people and that kind of hospitality and openness and friendliness. So I'm very well aware of that. And I think that kind of whiteness, that also white privilege that you have, when you're from Europe, you're also just treated well. And we've had lots of talks about white privilege also with the children because, you know, we live in Beitsafafa, we cross checkpoints every day. And when we cross the checkpoints where settlers also cross, the soldiers, they do something that we can call racial profiling. So they look in the car and when they see white people, they'll let them pass without stopping them. When they see somebody that looks like an Arab, they stop them. They ask for their ID cards. And so the Palestinians from Jerusalem, they are allowed to cross those checkpoints. So they will check them, but they are not allowed, for example, to bring food items and electronic equipments and a lot of things you are not allowed to bring through these checkpoints because the Israeli authorities obviously want the Palestinians from Jerusalem to buy and consume in Jerusalem to support the economy of Jerusalem and not to go into the West Bank and buy there and support the Palestinian economy. So they check the cars, you have to open the back of the car. And so my daughter already at a young age was asking me, why do they stop the car in front of us and why don't they stop us? Why do they stop me when I'm with Baba, with my father in the car? And why don't they stop me when I'm with you in the car? And I told her, it's because we are white. It's because when they look at us, they don't think you're Palestinian. And then she already once said, I think it's better when I'm with Baba in the car that I will not speak Arabic. So they will not know that I'm Palestinian. And you know, my heart broke because I said, you don't have to be ashamed of your identity. You know, they are wrong. You didn't do anything wrong and you don't have to be afraid of them. This is your right to to cross into Bethlehem. You don't have to be afraid of the soldier on the checkpoint. But even, you know, I have a bag with a strap that is made of the cloth of the kofia of the Palestinian shawl. And my daughter asks me to put down my bag so the soldiers won't see it because she knows that if they see it, they may recognize it as a Palestinian symbol and they may stop us and question us. And she's just really nervous about the soldiers. So, yeah, I mean, but definitely being white has a lot of advantages in many ways. And sometimes we use our whiteness to the advantage of other people here but I can't really talk about that on the podcast there are some things that it's better to to not uh, talk about publicly but yeah I, we have to deal you know with this reality and some people ask me about raising my children in a different culture with a husband who has different culture if that doesn't give complications and honestly we are lucky I would say that my husband, you know, he's an atheist, so he doesn't have strong like, or not at all religious principles. And we have quite the same ideas about what we feel is important in life and how we think that we should raise our children. Of course, we have different styles. Tarek is much more strict and firm with the children than me. I uh, practice a bit more patience with them. But I think that's really fine because the kids are learning that there are different styles of raising and 
they, some things they know they can get, for example, with their father. If they want to watch TV or to play computer games, yeah, he will allow them. All the afternoon they will sit and do that together. For me, no, I have a strict rule. There is no TV until uh, it gets dark and just like hopefully one hour a day. Sometimes it's a little bit more. And if they want something sweet and they ask their dad, he will more easily give it to them than me. But for other things, if they want to play around the house and they will, I know that we know that they will make a mess, but I am allowing them because I feel that I will clean up the mess behind them if needed, because I want them to explore. I want them to do arts and crafts. I want them to be creative. So they know what to ask to, to whom. And I think that's normal. But no, we don't have any problems in, in cultural differences. So what does our day look like? And how is that different from if I had lived in Holland? Like this is what I've also been really reflecting on and thinking about and also hearing from my friends back in Holland who have children. It is different. For example, we have to drive our kids to school by car. If I'd lived in Holland, I will be able to drive them by bike or walk them or we would go by bicycle. Here, that's not possible. My kids go to school in Bejala, which is on the other side of the wall. So we have to cross the checkpoint and you cannot reach it also because it's a bit too far away. But you can't do that easily on foot. So we go by car and they start school normally, not in the month of Ramadan. I'm actually very happy because during this month they start at nine, but usually they start at 730 which means that we have to leave the house by seven, which means we have to wake up really early. And uh, <laughs> this is not really, um, I think, my talent to wake up really early. But yeah, that's uh, the time until around two o'clock. And I noticed that when, and we do the same now, when children come home from school, which is around 2.30, that's when you eat the warm meal. So they come home and you eat what they call rada. And rada is the really the most important meal of the day. So in Holland, the most important meal of the day, the warm meal, is always served at six in standard traditional families. I am sure that these days things are also changing and that some people who are listening to this podcast will say, well, we never eat dinner at six. We eat much later. But generally, we can say that dinner is served at six. And this is something I had really to get used to because in Holland to eat your warm meal in the middle of the day, okay, you have your lunch at 12.31 and lunch in Netherlands, it's a sandwich or a salad maybe, maximum a soup, but it's something khafif as we say here in Arabic, something light. And then maybe in between the lunch and the dinner, you will have a cup of tea with a with one biscuit. <laughs> This is always, foreigners are joking about that, but it's true. When you go to a Dutch family, generally, they have one cookie with the coffee or with the tea and or maybe a piece of fruit or something like that. And that's it. 
And then we have the warm meal at six. So yeah, I had to get used to that. Also about the Palestinian food. So I don't know in other countries, but in the Netherlands, we have usually the traditional is you have potatoes, you have boiled vegetables and a piece of meat or a piece of fish or a piece of chicken. And then to make that a little bit nicer, you make a sauce and you add the sauce over it. Okay, I know this is very old-fashioned and traditional, but this is how I grew up. Sometimes my mom used to try other things and we used to eat rice and uh, spaghetti and there were pretty new things at the time. But now I think a lot of people in the Netherlands also got used to a very rich cuisine, influences from many different other cultures and countries. I, I also think a lot of people do quite a lot of like deliveries or ready-made food in the supermarket that you put in the microwave. I've never even seen that here. It does not exist in Palestinian supermarkets. There's no way that you find ready-made spaghetti or lasagna or any kind of dishes and then you put it in the microwave. That just doesn't exist. So the meals here, they have a name. That's also something I found very interesting. So when you tell somebody we're eating makluba, then you know this is a dish with fried vegetables. Mainly they use carrots and cauliflower and eggplant and potato. And it has rice and then it usually has chicken. Some people use it, do it with meat. And you basically put all of that in one pot And because the vegetables and the chicken go down in the pot and the rice with the spices on top of it, that once it's cooked, you flip it over upside down. And that's what makluba means. It means upside down. And then you lift the pot and then you have the meal. It basically, if it, if it doesn't fall apart, it basically looks like uh, a cake, but made of rice, vegetables and chicken. That's called makluba. Today, for example, my mother-in-law for the iftar, she made msachin. And this is a very traditional Palestinian dish that does not really exist in uh, other countries of the Levant, here in, uh, in the Arab world. And it is flat bread that is covered with a mixture of olive oil, fried onions and sumac. And sumac is uh, made of a small berry that is crushed and it has a sort of sour taste. Nowadays, they serve it with chicken, roasted chicken. comes from the oven. But in the old days, I learned from Izzedine Bukhari from Sacred Cuisine that it is originally a dish that was invented in the fields. When they were trying the olive oil quality, they would want to heat it up because that was how they could test the quality. And they used as a kind of a layer on which they could heat up the oil, they used the bread, the flat bread. And then while heating it up, they would see what happened to the olive oil. And then they wanted to eat it. Then they ate it with whatever they found around them, which was onions and sumac. And that's how the tradition of this msachin started. And then you have lots of other dishes. But each one, when you say we eat tonight, we eat a malfouf. You know you're getting stuffed cabbage leaves or we're eating what it dawali then you know we're getting stuffed grape leaves or you say we are eating mensev then you know you're getting rice with meat usually and made with a kind of yogurt sauce which is actually interesting dried yogurt a Bedouin tradition and so all of these dishes they have a name 
And you know what you will get when you order it or when your mom tells you that that's what she's going to make. By the way, I don't know if I said that before on a podcast, but I realized that most of the Palestinian dishes start with the letter M. And I still didn't figure out if that is a coincidence or if that has something to do with maybe the with the Arabic tense or form in which the names of the dishes are described. But think about it. I said ma'luba, mensef, malfouf, mjaddara, maftool, mluchia, mehshi, msachin. And I think there are more, but I don't remember all of them. But yeah, I don't know. If anybody has an answer to this, please write me on the Facebook or on Instagram or an email because I'm really curious to understand why that is. Anyway, back to my children and our daily routine. So when they come home from school and we eat the warm meal after that, we're supposed to do homework. And honestly, this is also a big difference. In the Netherlands, children don't really get a lot of homework. I don't remember having homework until I was 12 years old or something. My children, since they... Now Hadi is in kindergarten still... He will go to the first grade, Safawal, next year. They already, every day, they send him uh, papers uh, of homework. It's not like they're checking it and that if he doesn't do them, he has trouble. But he already gets homework. My daughter is in the third grade. She has regular homework. I think, God, my daughter is pretty good in most of the school subjects. She doesn't really need a lot of preparation But I know of mothers in Palestine that spend all afternoon sitting with their children, and most of them have more than two, just doing their homework with them. And I don't know, that's for me. I cannot. And my homework is for them to, to do if they really need help, maybe in the future, if there's something they really don't understand or they need more help to plan their time. This is where I would give some advices, but to sit down with my kids and do homework. Anyway, what I can do with them is English and German, because my kids get German in school and I do speak German. And I can help them a little bit now still with mathematics because it's still simple. But I cannot really help them with their Arabic and with science and what she has also. Oh, religion. Yeah, let's talk about the religion. So, Here in this country, let's say, both on the Israeli side and in Palestine, you are born with a religion. And this is already written on your birth certificate. So my kids on their birth certificate, it's written that they are Muslim. It's very interesting because none of us is religious. I consider myself, as I said, agnostic. My husband is an atheist, but still my kids are Muslims. And that means that when they go to school and the Ministry of Education in Palestine says, you take in religion classes the religion you belong to. So during religion classes, you have a number of children who are Christian. They go to another classroom and they get taught about the Bible. And then you have the other children, which is actually the majority. My daughter has four Mohammeds in the class. So she goes to the Islamic classes. So what they do there is actually they just memorize surahs, verses from the Quran. Thanks God my daughter doesn't mind it. She likes to memorize. She's good at it. So 
she's coming to me and she tells me, oh, I had A plus for religion and I want to tell you this surah. And she goes and tells me this surah. I'm like, okay, and what does it mean? And then she's like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, okay, so you can memorize this and you can repeat it, but you have no clue what are you learning? And I once asked one of the parents and she was like, no, first they learn to memorize it. And then later when they're older, they will get the explanation. So for me, I sometimes find that a little bit difficult because I don't mind that she learned something about Islam. I wish that all children in the world will learn something about all religions, because I think eventually they can choose for themselves what is the you know, the vehicle to go through this life. What is the best religion? But it doesn't make sense to me to just memorize something and you don't understand what does it mean. But yeah, this is how it is. Sometimes my kids ask me, can we go somewhere? Can we do something? And uh, that's also something I find a little bit harder here. Because, for example, when we're in Holland, we have the bicycle and we just go for a bike ride. And literally... Every 500 meters, we will find a park or a playground or a nice place to sit by a river or a canal or a lake. We can go into town and go shopping. And the shopping experience in a Dutch city is you park your bike and you go strolling around the old city center. In my city, if you've ever been, and if you have never been, I advise you to go to Utrecht. Maybe you will speak pronounce it as Utrecht when you read it, but it's Utrecht. You will walk along the canals, see beautiful old buildings, see nice churches, and then there are shops you can stroll and browse from one to the other. They made the whole city center without cars. It's a nice experience. You eat an ice cream here, you drink a coffee there. I mean, you can already hear that I'm really looking forward to the summer holidays, because it's really a nice experience. Here, honestly, if we want to go somewhere, we have to think, where do we want to go? There are barely any playgrounds or places to go. There are now two or three indoor playgrounds, but most of the focus in there is on computer games. And it's not really what I want for the kids. There are barely any parts, especially in the West Bank, where it's easy to reach to go for a hike without being afraid of the army or settlers coming to bother you or to ask you who you are or, you know, to park your car somewhere safe. It's not impossible, but there you need really need to check and think about it and prepare that. And if you want to go shopping, it's a, a little bit hard. Like there is, for example, in Bethlehem, there is an old city center you can walk there, but most of the shops are souvenir shops. They are more catered towards the tourists. So usually you have a shop here and a shop on the other end of the town where you need something. And you do everything by car. And really, we spend a lot of time here in the car. In Holland, I never even had a car. I actually learned how to drive car in Palestine. And then later, I did a driving test in Holland to get a Dutch driving license because that helped me here on the Israeli side to get my Israeli driving license because they would not accept the Palestinian one. But I learned to drive here and that is pretty good, I think, because I learned to anticipate because <laughs> driving here is pretty crazy. There are in Bethlehem, for example, there are only two traffic lights. 
in all of the city. And I heard that even that, traffic lights and tunnels, tunnels and bridges, these are all under the Oslo agreements. It's agreed that Palestinians cannot build that kind of infrastructure. Yeah, so there is a little bit of traffic police around, Palestinian traffic police, but usually, honestly, when there's Palestinian traffic police, there's more chaos than if there isn't. There's only this one person. He was very famous because he used to be working in Ramallah on the main roundabouts in the center, the roundabout with the lions. And he's very theatrical when he does his work. He's very clear on giving the instructions and he makes it into a show. And they moved him to Bethlehem. So I get to see him sometimes on some of the most important junctions where you have most problems. When he's there, everything goes fine. And when somebody doesn't listen to him, he goes to talk to him. He's very strict. He has a lot of respect among the people. But generally, driving car is hard. There's lots of beeping on the horns, which also in Holland, it's forbidden. Only in an emergency case, when you are trying to avoid a traffic accident, maybe you will use it. But otherwise, here it's they communicate and signal to each other. And when you see the traffic light is going from red to orange to go to green, already it's just on orange and they start honking their horns behind you. Let yalla go drive. You really have to practice mindfulness in your car when you're driving here. But so far, so good. I never had a real accident. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to share with you about living here is that we don't really have the same weekend as... I would have had if I lived in Holland, where Saturday and Sunday is off. And I think that is normal in most parts of the world. But here, because, you know, the school has Muslims and Christians. So we have the Friday off because of the Muslims. And we have the Sunday off because of the Christians, which means that the kids go to school on Saturdays. And then as we live on the Israeli side of the wall, on the Jerusalem side of the wall... The people around us in the settlements, we live between Harhoma and Gilo settlement, they are off on Saturdays. And not only that, it is Shabbat on Saturday. And Shabbat, they don't drive cars. So on Friday, it's weekend. On Saturday, the kids go to school, but I still have a weekend feeling also because I grew up with Saturday as a weekend. And around me, there is like... It's a beautiful day, by the way. It's so much silence. There's no cars, no that big... Do you hear that on the background now? There was one of these guys on a motorcycle. They come by the road behind us. and nah, You have noise all the time. But on Saturday morning, super quiet, especially during Ramadan now. Saturday morning, perfect for some mindfulness meditation. <laughs> Wonderful. Also, I need to say something about appointments and about scheduling and planning. In Holland, I was so used to have my diary or calendar or agenda, and I would plan ahead weeks, even months in advance. Here, people do not even have an agenda. Maybe some people in their office for work when they need to make some appointments But generally, I never hear people saying to me, oh, I have to check that in my agenda. 
While when I go back to Holland in the summer, my friends who know that I'm coming, they tell me already now that, yeah, we should plan something because, you know, otherwise we may not see each other because my agenda just gets so full so quickly. And it's so hard for me now, after having lived here for a long time, to plan ahead. I got unused of this. Because here, if you try to plan something ahead for next week, for example, big chance that it will change. It may change because it rains. In the winter, when it rains or snows, people don't come out of their house. So they may cancel. It may change because the checkpoints are closed, because there is problems, some escalations and some clashes are happening. It may change because the person you were going to meet has to go to a funeral or all of a sudden was asked to do something for their family and that's important and has priority. I can come up with a hundred reasons why things change last minute. Also because I think people here do not find it that hard to cancel. They also don't find it so hard to come late. So you get used to that also when you organize and plan something. You usually take that extra 20 minutes, half hour in advance. Uh, You want to do something at 3, you tell them to come at 2.30. So you know that by 3 o'clock everybody will be there. I mean, it sounds like stereotype, but it's true. This is what my experience is here. And many times when you want to make an appointment, people tell you, Inshallah, you know, Inshallah, God willing. Or we will see, we will see how. So basically, a lot of things can be organized on the day itself. The day before the day itself. You don't really plan ahead for a long uh, time. Only when you really want to confirm, you say Akid. When you say Akid, it's going to happen. I feel more confident when people tell me Akid, Akid. But still, you know, I know that it may not happen. And then uh, coming towards the end, because I can keep talking about this, what I noticed, especially in the last two weeks, again, is that in Palestine there are not really four seasons. In Holland I was so used that I have spring, summer, autumn and winter. Here it's like as if you jump directly from winter to summer. There is a few days that feel like spring, where it's not too hot, not too cold, where everything is green, but it's a really short period of time. And we had January, February, March were really cold and wet. It's the longest and coldest winter I have experienced here so far. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) we had a heat wave from out of nowhere. Maybe it took two, three days to warm up, and then a few days in a row we had a heat wave. So that is also something. And I developed hay fever here. I never had hay fever in my life. But since four years, I really struggle my way through these months where there is, I don't know, what is it? The blossoms. There are lots of trees are blossoming here right now. The almond tree, the cherry tree. Now we will start with the olive tree. Uh, Pollen in the air. There's also the dust. In this period between April and May, we have about 50 days, the Hamasin, where the wind is blowing in from south and east, bringing a lot of sand from the desert. So it is very dusty. 
The worst thing is when you went to clean your car and then there is a little bit of rain. It's just a few drops of rain and your whole car is full of sand because with the rain, the sand comes down and you need to go and wash your car again. <laughs> this is very typical of the month of April and May. After May, it's dry. There is no more rain for sure until October, November, sometimes even until December for real rain to fall down. So there are many months where it's completely dry and all the green that we still have now is going to vanish and everything is going to turn yellow. Yeah, I think also that is maybe a good way to end this podcast. We still have two weeks of Ramadan ahead and I hope to continue contemplating and thinking and analyzing my life here, but also my spiritual path. Maybe I should finish with an experience I had during a mindfulness retreat two and a half years ago, where during longer sessions of meditation, we were asked by our mindfulness coach, she's a Palestinian Dutch Buddhist, and she had us connect to our inner warrior. And I had a very strong experience where my inner warrior that I visualized, I, I had a real lively image of my inner warrior, showed me the way and pointed in the far horizon. And it was a long, flat landscape, yellowish, like a desert, but it was flat. And he told me, this is your path. You are on your path and there are no obstacles. And that gave me so much peace of mind, knowing that I am on my path. I left my country, I left my family, I left my friends behind, and that wasn't easy. But I am on my path, and there are no obstacles. for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the Kofi platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs>